Welcome to Bitch Conoclast. I'm Sonia Lee. And I'm Dylan Nicole Bandy. Bitch Conoclast is a mother-daughter conversation about sex, feminism, and power. Here in our fourth episode, we're talking with novelist and essayist Vanessa Veselka. Vanessa has been at various times a teenage runaway, a sex worker, a union organizer, and a student of paleontology. Her work appears in Salon, GQ, Bitch Magazine, The Atlantic, Tin House, Ziziva, and Best American Essays. Her novel Zazen won the 2012 Penn Bingham Prize for Fiction, and in 2013 she was chosen as a McDowell Fellow. Today she joins us in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Vanessa Vasaka. I want to start with what I think you said was the most read article ever for GQ magazine. Highly read, in any Highly case. Read. I, Highly I don't, read. I wouldn't say most read. Okay. My great, my great claim to fame on that was that it topped. Um, they had something. It wasn't like best breasts of the year, but they had their like <laughs> they had their like yearly like best female but I can't remember what it was and it topped that and my editor called and said I thought you'd be proud <laughs> <laughs> so. raised above yeah. it was the truck stop killer which had a, a a different title yeah originally yeah highway of lost girls highway of lost girls which I much prefer in any case you talk about your experience in narrowly escaping a terrible murderer of women travelers around the time that you were a teenage hitchhiker and later you go back to visit these places where the event occurred and you discover that no one remembers the girls or very few people actually remember the girls and the incidents of that time you know I never was sure whether it was the same guy or whether it was another guy just like him you know um we tend to fetishize serial killers you know we don't say for instance we don't give superhero names to the women who get away from them so for me, one of the most powerful lessons in that was, you know, just how common they are and, you know, that it was him or somebody else. For me, it was like it almost didn't matter if it was him. The problem is the problem. One of the things that I find so striking and is kind of a through line of your work, there's no cultural narrative for women on the road and besides rape and death. Mm -hmm. I was 15 at the time when I... I mean, it's a very vivid memory. I was in a mm. truck stop. I saw a young, maybe 19, 20-year-old boy. I naturally gravitated to him over, say, all the fat, balding truckers who were, you know, slurping down the chicken fried steak yeah. and trying to grab my ass. And I, you know, tried to talk to him. And he was so, he treated me like I was dirty. And, mm. and yet he was reading on the road. And I remember, like, trying to ask him about that book. And he was so kind of snobby about like you wouldn't understand years later I read it and I thought Jack Kerouac never went anywhere he had like he had cash and he crossed the country like he wants a prize you know there's Frodo there's Siddhartha there's you know I mean this quest narrative when a man steps on the road his adventure begins but when a woman steps on the road hers ends and that is the fundamental um, thing that I still see I took a lot of heat in that article uh, or sorry, I'm mixing. The truck stop killer piece, I also wrote a companion that came out within six weeks of that called uh, Green Screen, The Lack of um, Female Road Narratives and Why It Matters. And I was looking at Quest and the lack of sort of basic Quest narratives for women, um, which is kind of where I see the road tradition coming out of a Quest tradition, like you're going on a journey, you know, the classic hero's journey. I tried to think of the ones I could come up with that didn't end in death, you know, rape, pillage, and death. And 
I'm talking about, and I mean, I say it literally in the piece, deep, iconic narratives, comma, the kind that would leap to an average person's mind at a truck stop when they saw you. And that's the thing is, and that's that you can be empowered internally as much as you want, but you're in an interactive relationship with people and the narratives they see you with, right? And as long as I was on the road, people didn't see me as somebody who had possibilities other than rape or death to act as if I could possibly be having another experience, an adventure, an exploration, um, a, a need to get somewhere, mm -hmm. um, any number of other things. And so has it changed? Um, I haven't been hitchhiking out in the world in the last few years. I don't actually think it's changed a lot. You know, I think a lot about our need for new archetypes and new myths because the problems and narratives of misogyny are so deep they're not going to be unseated by like five years of tweeting right. you know i'm you know this is my blog about my journey you like it's not i mean that's you could write an amazing story with a woman who has experiences on the road that isn't about her just surviving death more than women on the road blogging about their experiences a lot of times. Although obviously women telling their stories on the road has a deep effect for other women on the road that goes to their own identity and comfort. And you know what I mean? So those are powerful in another way, but in terms of like the heavy lifting of a major narrative, you know, that's a mythic thing. That's where we don't have it. And, um, that could affect many, many people. And that might affect the man at the truck stop who sees me or sees the woman now. And that has an effect on what happens for women on the road. You said in an interview that you have very strong female role models. Um, I was curious about who those people were and how they shaped your sense of authority. Hmm. Well, my mother. I mean, uh, she was a very, very strong person, is. I watched her uh, take on power structures. She was one of the first women in national television. Um, she was very much one of the first women in, uh, you know, newsrooms. All men, and these were, I mean, I rem I'm just old enough to really remember what some of these newsrooms and places were like, and it was beyond boys club, you know? And uh, I always think that like her true calling was a little more to be a cowboy. You know, she was really good at playing poker and drinking and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> hard marksmanship. Being and, a little salty. Yeah. You know, I mean, and she's yeah. from Texas. Um, yeah. And, you know, she had all of those strengths. Uh, so, you know, separate from whether you agree with something or not agree with something, we all see, we can see that strength of authority. It, it kind of goes beyond your personal relationship with somebody even, you know, that, um, that sense of authority. I mean, I remember uh, years ago um, playing music in Seattle because I was a musician and I noticed something about women guitarists and there was a tendency um, for them to have like no authority in the right hand like their playing could be amazing, but their relationship to owning the object was still unauthoritative. And then you would see the women who really had that authority with it. Like they owned that object. They owned that guitar and you could see it. And that was, and even if they weren't as strong players, you could just feel it. Those are the subtleties that are there in authority. You know, if women are in a space and they take up that space and they, they, just own it as if it's not a question. That's a very different presence. And I was around a lot of people who, you know, particularly my mom, but 
also my grandmother. I mean, you know, other people who did that. Did it make you more naturally authoritative? Yes. I've always had uh, the, the rewards and uh, penalties for mm. natural authority. I grew up and I, I, in a way, um, I don't know. I've always said things like they're just a fact. Since I was five, okay, I got kicked out of, I got suspended from kindergarten. It's, <laughs> it's a sad story. I got kicked out of the brownies. I got, you know, so, and it all comes, I got kicked out of high school. I had, I got suspended in grade school. You know I mean? Like all these things. And in every, almost every case, part of the dynamic was this my inability to recognize the authority of a teacher or a, a an adult in a certain situation the mistake was I was not intending um, to usurp their authority I didn't see it and you know I just didn't and so my inability to read it uh, in other people uh, I mean it took me years to figure out I mean I think I kind of figured that out about five years ago had to like write down things like when they make this face I'm upsetting them mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean they're feeling like I'm challenging their authority and I have to like do like palm showing techniques and say certain things to relax people about their authority so that they understand I'm not coming at them I'm just saying what I'm saying I taught your essays and Zazen in a class that I did on women characters called Beyond Thelma and Louise ah and the students' reactions were really a lot about how significant it was in your work, how you interrogated the sense of mobility in such a way as to really take up space and authority mm -hmm. on it and how that formed you, these not just the experiences as a hitchhiker, but what it really means to uh, be in movement and mobility as a woman. Well, I moved like a ton of times growing up and then uh, when I left home and I was 15 I hitchhiked that first year over 10,000 miles by the time I was in my early, like 21 I'd probably done about 22,000 miles hitchhiking and I had gone to Europe with a one-way ticket and like no money and a guitar um, and I had uh, I'd been given a Eurail pass which had a one-month thing on it and um, this is 1987. The last stop on the Eurail Pass at that time was uh, Thessaloniki. Uh, but I didn't get off the train there because the next stop was Istanbul and I wanted to go there. So, you know, I made this decision, of course, fundamental to my nature, and I think to the nature of many people who are, you know, want to explore things, I'm going to go as far as I can with what I have and figure it out later. I remember how it felt to be leaving the train station in Thessaloniki. I don't have credit cards. I have no cash. I have no ticket. You know, I'm just waiting to see, like, what's going to happen in this situation? I don't really know. You know? And, uh, but having this kind of confidence that bordered on insanity, that, like, somehow I would just figure it out and that was that came out of my experience of many many thousands of miles hitchhiking and so you know the i remember when the um you know they came around for the passport and then they came around for the ticket and they said can i have your ticket and i said and i just looked at him, i said i don't have one <laughs> and he's like well we can sell you one i'm like i don't have any money and he just looked at me he couldn't fathom well and he looked at me but then he looked up at my guitar and he said do you know how to play hotel california and i said yes i do <laughs> 
And so I ended up playing Hotel California like 10 times in a row for like all the Turkish control people and and you know and I got there at like dawn and the mosques were going off and he gave me three little oranges and he said don't get in trouble and you know, <laughs> I was like and I was in Turkey and it was amazing and it was 1987 it was very different do you so, think there was a particular charm from being female bodied oh yeah I mean without a doubt it, you know it, it cuts both ways um the ability offer or willingness to trade work was not an option for me. You would, I would say over and over when I was hitchhiking, like, I'll help you unload, which is what male hitchhikers did, by and large. They would, it's called lumping. That was not an option, it wasn't considered real. It was considered a joke. You know, I think the other thing I have to say is that music played a big part because musicians have always floated in class. They, f they live, artists in general, but musicians just because they get hired for like the weddings of the rich and famous, you know, mm -hmm. and you know, you can play in the Sultan's Palace, you know, in yeah. 1700 if you're a musician, right? And you can be a woman if you're a musician, even in places where women are not allowed. So in Turkey in 87, I would frequently walk into tea houses where women were really not allowed. And I would walk in and there would be all this noise and everything would stop. It would be 30 people staring at me, and it would be silent. And, and there were, the tension was incredible about who was going to handle telling me. But I had a guitar, and somebody would come up to me, and they would say, can we help you? And I said, I want to play guitar. And they were like, okay. So I would sit down, and I would play guitar in these places. I had a separate sphere. And that's another question of narrative. So I was allowed to suddenly walk into that space, and have a different role there, right? But having that other narrative and, and you know, that and it was as big a part of anything I was able to do. It's been interesting, I mean, partly because of your work, um, but also other places where I've been going looking for women's narratives, um, whether it's Thelma and Louise, or some people put um, Eat, Pray, Love in that version of a journey story. Mm -hmm. But when you go out looking for these things, there's, um, there's potentially really feminist narratives. And so many of them are haunted by their home lives and the relationships have to come back for them in some way and prevent them mm -hmm. from really getting out on the road. And I think one of the things that you do in your work that's really extraordinary is that you have the ability to leave home behind. It's not haunting you in many of the same ways that it is those other works like the masculinist road stories that are out there everybody has the capacity for being on a quest right Without like the they don't have three chapters of backstory about his relation you know sal paradisio's relationship with his mom right yes. <laughs> or that the husband's you know helping the fbi try yeah. and crack them or something yeah. like really what goes down in thelma and louise i mean right. i think part of the reason why i have such an ache for the new story is is what happens to a woman's life when she's really free of that domesticity? I haven't seen a lot of versions of that. Have you? Have you? Do you well, find that elsewhere? I haven't. And you know, it's funny. I didn't. I've had people say like, "You should write your own in fiction." And you know, I've thought about it at different times. But uh, my approach to fiction is very. Um, you know, I start by free writing, then I start by character, and then I'm using dialogue, and then I'm in it, and then the characters are kind of working it as much as I am. And so yeah. I write five hours a day, three to five hours a day, I'll get 600 words. So if I'm going to write an 800 page novel, that's a lot of fucking work, frankly. So it's 
the thing that kept me going over and over is like, if I don't write it, these characters aren't in the world. You're really bringing something through that's, that's if it's working, it's new and it's taking a life of its own. And then you're carrying that responsibility. Yeah. So they're going to ravage your plot. They're going <laughs> to steal your ideas. They're going to like destroy your moral sensibilities. Like that's the nature of fictional characters. That's why they're wild. I was very surprised actually in this new novel. I ended up writing a, a road section that I didn't expect to write, you know, um, and so there are there are all these elements of travel in the book. So it's a story about um, kind of a chosen. So the basic idea is these two sisters who are thirty, both thirty three years old, who at the start of the book, you know, they're half sisters. The reason they're half sisters is that their mom had been in an open relationship with this guy in grad school. Their mom was like nineteen. And um, there was another woman who came into that and they were all friends and their cycles lined up and they got pregnant at the same time. And one was very much not ready for it. And the other one was sort of like, I, I'll do it. Um, they sort of uh, threw dice in a sense. They, um, they did I Ching toss for who was going to get the kids and then neither know um, who the real mother is. So it's always been the secret. Point being, the beginning of the novel has this setup where they get the address of the other mother that they've never been able to track down or know anything about. So they decide to go and try to find her. So the beginning of it has this road story with the two sisters. And it's a lot about class because they're, they're apolitical characters who live in a completely political context. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot about class. It's a lot about movement. They really have nothing on the one hand, uh, their, their ability to move in a way that allows them to get something done is uh, completely hindered by the fact that they have no money. But their ability to just walk out of situations because there's nothing there to save is also very big. And part of it is this question of, um, are there points for grace? Are there points for boldness? I did not realize how much I was going to be writing a road story. And it's a, it's a solid section of the book. And I used some of my own experiences and I almost never do that in fiction. I almost never like, and there were a couple in there that went into that and it, it's a heart of darkness journey. <laughs> it's just, and it gets, and the body, and like, it just gets weird. And it reminds me so much of what it actually, I was, I felt good about it because I felt like I actually wrote what it felt like to be on the road, which is you have 10,000 years in one, you know, two weeks. You have 20,000 interactions that are all completely crazy, and 10,000 of them happened yesterday. You know, there's this way that time changes. There's this way that the sense of time expands, but like, so I got to get that sense of that character going through experience after experience after experience after experience that are like equally intense with very, very lousy sleep as they're moving across the country. Um, and it felt more like any, like road journeys I've been on than anything I've seen or have written myself. We'll see what my editor says. <laughs> I think that there would be a very, I mean, I could see somebody, and this comes back to narratives. I could see somebody saying, oh, that's great. Or I could see somebody coming back and saying, there's too many things happening at once. We don't know how to tell these stories. I mean, how do you tell a story with no consistent characters? This is a really, really big problem for how you tell road stories and so I think you have to bust it up I mean I'm mm -hmm. I'm really excited to read this story I, I hope that they do keep the road piece in it oh they will I you know that the, the, 
the class, you know, you did. She's really uh, smart. My editor is really smart. You did share uh, a couple of chapters with us. And uh, Dylan and I were talking about the class elements in it. And uh, one of the pieces that was so exciting for me to read was at the wedding. And it was just it was just really a brief phrase or two. Um, that sensibility when you're working without much and you observe things like what other people are wearing and Mm -hmm. that they have latitude to make their own choices in life. And all of that communicates without really saying anything at all. And was just this perfect surrounding of a wedding ceremony for two people who, you know, as you said, are apolitical, but there they are observing their own world all of the striations right around them yeah because the two sisters are watching their dad marry somebody like you know younger than them and uh and the situation is that he's very wealthy and they're very poor and they've been raised on you know they've been raised essentially on welfare benefits with their mom who was a teen mom and they've been finally invited to the wedding it's those things that people who have it don't notice a lot of times just the quality of a hiking boot or the you know kind of fleece jacket because they're in the northwest um the sort of cost of being able to just buy the view you know just all these elements of the way that wealth is in that wedding that they are not a part of but that is taken for granted by every single person who is not working the wedding or them and i'm really that's throughout the book because it's something that um we don't talk about class enough, and it's so big. Especially in weddings. Yeah, oh my God. The amount of money spent by my group of friends, say ages 25 to 35, the amount of money spent on dresses, on traveling to weddings, it just feels like this whole festival of how much money can I spend on this one day that doesn't feel like an investment in anything. Well, and it's tied to dowry, right? Like, yes. I mean, like this property. is all about property transfer, yeah. right? Which is capitalism, yeah. right? And and it doesn't take any stretch to just go, like the means of reproduction, the means of production, the same fucking thing, right? <laughs> like, so, I mean, there is a there is a really good longstanding critique of, you know, you know who, um, the person who really brings that into socialist and communist thought is Engels, who brings it in really early, the idea of looking at women as part of that kind of capitalist system rather than just, you know, uh, production at the industrial level. So Go Angles. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so. And you're, te- you're teaching class in writing now, specifically about class in writing. Um, you know, I, Lydia Yuknich, as, as you know, is a writer here mm-hmm. and also a good friend of mine. And I rant about class with her uh, over pho quite a bit um and uh we had talked about wanting to co-teach and she said come up with an idea and I'm like well it's going to be one thing or the other it's either myths or class you know? <laughs> like, and so we did a workshop um but my fear in a way setting it up was that we're going to get a lot of um college educated white guilt mm-hmm. people who you know want to talk about class but aren't necessarily working class people and aren't necessarily coming from, you know what I mean? That there's not going to be much of a discourse past a kind of academic discourse. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that would, that would have been my, like, who's going to sign up for the class? Like, you know, well-meaning lefties are going to sign up for the class, right? Like that would have been my knee jerk expectation. In well, Portland, especially. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what was really surprising 
was that I would say 75% of our class had grown up on public assistance. So really deep, deep working class ties or below the poverty line ties. And there were two folks in there who had come from money that they, um, they were both first generation and they had that first generation, their parents, had, their dads had come there and been successful and they were the first generation contending with this kind of like, where do I fit? But what was interesting about it was that all of these people had, um, the, the reason it was there is that there were people with funds, with money, financial privilege, who had come forward and said, I want to pay for a spot for someone to go. And Lydia had said, well, why aren't you coming? And they're like, oh, I don't think it's for me. If without those scholarships, we couldn't have brought those people there. But the fear of discourse is so strong. And we were really talking about stories. I mean, we did a little analysis just to sort of get people on the same page. Like, let's look at, you know, I did a whole section in particular in the beginning. I'm like, we're going to get on the same page about basic understandings of what we mean when we say class, who we're talking about. You know, even things that were playful, like let's look at the kind of illnesses, you know, diabetes in the working class, heart conditions in this, you know, in the uh -huh. second and cancer in the third, because they live long enough. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. you know, we could play games that way. How do you fight was one of the questions that came up. You know, working class people fight with their bodies. You know, middle class people fight with silence. And these are all gross generalizations and rich people fight with lawyers, right? There were different mm -hmm. ways that you could see class in many things. You said a friend of yours said to you, um, a writing teacher and a male friend, um, said he'd never run across a man in a workshop who doubts their right to a yes. story, but almost every woman he'd met, no matter how badass or aggressive in some way and talented, um, at a fundamental level, she struggled with whether or not she had the right to tell the story she was telling. Um, I want to expand that past the binary and, and talk about that within class. I want to talk about that within... Um, well, write to story. I mean, I did a piece uh, last year or year before. I can't remember. They're all rushing together. That involved my sort of tenuous relationship with um, the Klingit up in Sitka, and, or rather in Juneau, but the family was from Sitka originally because my father was adopted by a Klingit tribe, uh, clan. And um, I learned a lot through the course of that story about rules uh, around who owns a story. They have a very set of specific, very hardcore rules in a way about who owns stories viewed as property, um, and it's not if it's not your family's story, or you didn't lose somebody in it, you know, it's not your story. And this is in traditional culture. I mean, you know, you don't actually have the right to tell that story. And I was looking at the Battle of Sitka, which is 1804 battle, under this light because one side of the story had always been told, the colonial side, and another side had not. But then as the, um, as the Kiksadi and Klingit who were working through this, for themselves, this process of like what gets told, what isn't, whose story is it, you know, they began to say, well, it's a Kiksadi story, but it also belongs to the Russians who were there. And it also belongs to, well, then what about our, you know, our eagle daughters, because the clans, um, one would be raven, one would, uh, a raven would marry an eagle, right? Like, what about them? What about our families that are affected by the legacy of this story, or were affected directly by this story? And so, the, you know, the thing moves out, and it becomes this thing where there's no way to draw that line between who owns a story. I'm very at odds with this. It's something I have no peace around. I find in the work I do for magazines, 
And I'm constantly having the conversation of my great discomfort at telling a particular story. And other people look at me going like, why? <laughs> why didn't you say, why don't you, what's your story too? You know, you saw it, you have an opinion, you have a voice, you know, and I just, but then being around the Klingit version of that was like, you know, it does, it feels very colonial, this idea, like it's mine because I saw it. It's mine because I had a thought about it. It's mine because I have an opinion. So on the one hand, I feel like there's a really good, good reason to push back. On the other hand, I believe that great art transcends everything. It's not, okay. So what are my options when I sit down and write? Am I gonna have black characters in my book? Well, I'm not a black person. I didn't grow up in predominantly black neighborhoods. Um, I, you know what I mean? Or like, whatever. I mean, if I'm, I'm not a trans person, I'm not, whatever it is. Well, I'm, I'm given a choice to either have them and risk getting hit with like, it's not your story to tell. Why do you have these characters in there? Da, da, da. Now, personally, I would not make the main characters. I, I would not be comfortable personally writing deeply into their experience with an, you know, in a lot of ways, but what's the other alternative? And this is where I think sometimes progressives and activists really need to step fucking back a little bit because the alternative is an all white world. Am I going to write, am I actually going to recreate an all white world over and over and over? Like that's also <laughs> like really, really not a help. And so I just feel like it's, it's not a question that can be answered. Whose story is it and whose right is it to, to tell it? You know, I, I don't, I think I distrust anybody who can answer that question. Uh, and this is not a very popular thing to say, but I want to present another view um, along with the one that's dominant, which I also understand. So you have this whole movement in the 70s pedagogically of, of personal narrative becoming a big part of the teaching structure with the idea that we're going to bring in other stories. This is how you're going to bring in other stories, right? Stories from other immigrant cultures, from other you know, gender orientations, whatever. You're going to bring it in through personal narrative. You teach them their voice counts. You teach them their story matters. You know, they, they learn they have a voice in the process, all solid, all solid. The problem is with everything in this country is balance, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so as somebody who's taught freshman comp and sat at a you know, state university and watched these folks coming in, they've been doing personal narrative forever. Mm -hmm. And the, so now what they have is a calcified identity on paper that they're used to handing in as their ticket into a class. Mm -hmm. And so I, it was a real eye-opening. I was starting to make me nervous, right? Because the skills weren't there in a lot of ways, but there was just this sense of, and of course, again, going back to your question, it was always the people who didn't, <laughs> didn't need that support that seemed to take it the most. But I guess what I'm saying, my daughter, when she was in third grade, I was walking her to school. She had a really good teacher for third grade and she was really good on writing process. And I said, what are you doing today? And she went, it's personal narrative again. <laughs> and I thought like, that's oh, how it is, yeah. right? So I, can't, I think we're a little too in love with our identity. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, I, I think that the story, that's a, that's an as a fixed, as a fixed thing, as a fixed thing. But I also think that like, I think a coming of age story, I, I think we've gotten stuck in coming of age stories mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's a problem too. You What's know? beyond coming of age? Well, I, that's actually what all my fictions in a lot of ways about. What do you do when, um, I look at like that sort of 30 to 40 as a secondary period where generally by the time you're in 33 or something like that, <laughs> sort of Christological frame, you've kind of tried all the ideas you thought you had since you were 15 about what you were going to be. Like you, you've given a run at a lot of different things and you're left with 
do you reinvent or do you keep going or do you settle? And I think that's a very interesting point. I used to see in music and art that people would just drop off at 25, then they would drop off mm-hmm. at 30. But then when you mm-hmm. meet 45 year old musicians, 40 year old musicians, I never met one that didn't, hadn't tried to quit, hadn't really tried to quit playing music to see if they could do it because they wanted health care and a life and a chance to take a vacation, but mm-hmm. they couldn't like, because you know, you just know you're a lifer when you know you're a lifer. Um, And so I think that there's a whole second stage of that. And it doesn't get written about very much. Like it's not a midlife crisis and it's not, it's really that, I think it is second coming of age. That's how I've referred to it when I talk about it, because I think it is like a second coming of age because you're coming into those parts that you really want to keep. You said something that was really interesting to me. I want to go to this quote. You say, a man on the road is caught in the act of a becoming. A woman on the road has something seriously wrong with her. She is not struck out on her own. She has been shunned. You argue also for not wasting time constructing your moral right to tell a story and to stop asking permission and just start. And start in the middle. Start in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious about what that is for you right now. Hmm. That's I, a deep question. I'm not sure if I can get quite at that directly. Let me. And uh, I'm a firm believer in no midlife crises as well. I, I, I hate the way that that's been completely played as being. Well, speaking of capitalism, I mean, it's wired, yeah. it's wired to marriage and children and you're marketed by age group. Right. But in additionally, you know, it's, it's that narrative gets reflected back, you know, the 20 something, the 30 something, the millennial, like, you know, they're, these are marketing names and marketing titles. That's what they are. So what am I starting in the middle of? Mm-hmm. I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, as much as I have this question about whose story it is to tell that is irresolvable, I also have really irresolvable questions about politics and activism and um, what, what is really uh, a mechanism for change. And, um, I mean, I hate to say it, it sounds like, but I'm, <laughs> they, they, it tortures me. I mean, it really honestly does. I mean, it, if you've read Zazen, you can guess yes. that it probably does. Yes. But it's continued to torture me in, in more uh, new different ways. And, um, and that's coming to my writing in the terms of questions of vulnerability. I felt like with this new novel that one of the things I faced that I was surprised about was the sense that I was, I suddenly became very aware of something I'd never seen, which is what happens when a filter comes off, right? And you go like, oh my God. I did not know in the fiction in this novel that I was protecting my sort of, uh, that, I, that I was hiding femininity, for lack of a better word, that I was hiding femininity um, in language in very particular ways and that I was not being forthright and I was not speaking naturally. Um, in terms of the, the writing of the book, because I was very, very subtly, it was like watching a, you know, a crazy bird trying to like protect its chick from something, you know, doing all sorts of weird stuff. Like, you know, like maybe if I walk around this way, maybe if I just run at it screaming or puff up or like find a stick and put it in my hair, you know I mean? Like there were all these tiny little strategies that I couldn't have even quite named that I suddenly became aware of. And they were all about the same thing. They were all about not... Um, about hiding 
something because I feared it would be feminized. And that that equated to this idea that, you know, I would lose my intellectual, you know, laminated card because it would be considered something else. And um, so as soon as I saw that, I had to dive in and obviously, you know, redo, revamp, re-understand the project. So I was kind of in the middle of that and in the middle of political stuff. And really, those are the two things that, um, that I feel that way about right now. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been Bitch Conoclast, a mother-daughter conversation around sex, feminism, and power. I'm Sonia Lee. And I'm Dylan Nicole Bandy. If you'd like to support us, visit our website, bitchconoclast.com. That's B-I-T-C-H-C-O-N-O-C-L-A-S-T.com. Or you can go to Patreon and make a donation to help keep us going. We're producing, hosting, editing, and marketing this podcast all on our own with the help of a few friends. If you like what you hear, rate this podcast on iTunes. Like Bitch Conoclast on Facebook and Instagram and sign up for our newsletter. Get in touch with your thoughts and questions because we'd love to keep this conversation going with you, our listeners. Next week, we're with novelist, essayist, memoirist, and short story writer Karen Carbo, where we talk about Julia Child, Georgia O'Keeffe, and, and other kick-ass women. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs>